0: Truth Jihad Radio is 100% crowdfunded and therefore fearless and independent. Please help us stay that way. You can subscribe at my Substack, that's kevinbarrett.substack.com. Or you could send a one time PayPal donation to Truth Jihad at gmail.com. Welcome to the live edition of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from the old ice cream trailer in the middle of a terrible thunderstorm somewhere in the driftless region of western Wisconsin at, of course, an undisclosed location. Tonight we'll be talking about, well, the usual depressing stuff. The uh, guests tonight both have some kind of connection to the U.S. Army. In the second hour, Joaquin Hagopian a West Point graduate and former Army officer, comes on to talk about his new article about NATO fast-tracking World War III. The title is uh, City of London's Desperado Edict, NATO Commits to Kiev's Fast-Track Membership and Cluster Bombing to World War III. And that should be a lively interview, as always, with Joaquin. In the first hour, our many-time repeat guests, Dr. Alan Sabrosky, former head of strategic studies at the U.S. Army War College. Is, he's well-known, of course, for coming on this show more than a decade ago and talking about 9-11 in an utterly politically incorrect way, and he's been doing all kinds of total <laughs> political incorrectness ever since, and his latest piece, published at the UNS Review, is on the decline of rule of law in today's America. He's tracing the roots, the symptoms, and why it seems to be going off a cliff right now. I certainly agree with a lot of it, probably not all of it, so let's get into it. Hey, welcome. Alan, how are you doing? Fine, Kevin. How about you? I'm good. I can barely hear myself talk uh, with the thunder and the rain, but I've got that earplug buried deep in my eardrum so I can hear you. Look at the bright side With that thunderstorm, the drones won't be able to find you either. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So, the uh, rule of law ain't what it used to be. And in your article, you're saying it really never was what it used to be. Uh, so, a lot of you said, you know, a lot of folks are, are blaming all these recent developments. If it were me, I would have foregrounded, I think, 9 11 and COVID, although you, you sort of mentioned some of that too. Uh, but you trace this back to a sort of inherent flaws in the constitutional structure. So know, where do you want to start?
1: Well, actually, I'd like to just to do do a quick sidestep, first of all, and thank you very much for the, the many years that we've been talking together. Um, I think our first one was in 2010. Um and we have been on many times since then. And I guess this is probably the last time we're going to be on this program. I don't know if you're going to continue or not. I don't know if I'm going to continue or not, but that's a different matter. Um, but I wanted to thank you for it and to let the audience know how much I deeply appreciated uh, the opportunity you gave me to speak to people.
0: Well, thanks, Alan.
1: Yeah, I, I really
0: appreciate the very uh, strong... And you know, well, well thought out, uncensored thoughts that you've been offering. Most most people's inner censor doesn't allow them to do it, and I, I'm glad that you're <laughs> able to get past that.
1: Well, uh, maybe I'm a jihadist at heart. I guess on that basis, you know, one of the things that 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 occurred to me. You know, I'm I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a constitutional lawyer. I'm a historian and a strategist. But when I when I looked at what's happened to the country in terms of its uh, its legal system, its courts, the whole absence, or I shouldn't really say absence, there is a form of law, but it's not one that civilized nations should have. Um, And it really represents simply a departure from the way the system was set up, which is in a very limited and focused way for a federal union of sovereign states, and they meant that sovereign states, one size was not supposed to fit all, not ever, except at the most general level of defense, foreign affairs and taking care of the outside with a very limited franchise and a federal government that was not omnipotent. And whatever one may think of the Civil War, uh either the origins of it or the outcome of it, the end of it essentially turned that on its head. You had an omnipotent federal government. The concept of sovereign states died at Appomattox. Um, maybe it should have, maybe it shouldn't have. It's different points of view. As the franchise expanded, the concept of a controlled, republic, and I'm in controlled in the sense of limited republic, uh, was replaced by that of a democracy. And as you know, demoskratia means mob rule, and it always leads to autocracy. Always. No exceptions. And that's where we've been going. And the more we expanded the franchise, the more we turned from civic responsibility to civil liberties, and it was never a clear division between the two, but there's a difference of priorities, the more we moved away from what the Constitution was intended to represent and to preserve. The result being that where we are today is a regime I can't call it a government but whether it's Republican or Democrat, it would be a regime which has the most tenuous relationship to the concept upon which the constitution was founded and which the country was founded on that constitution in which basically justice has become a whore, prostituted by whoever has the most money and can arrange the most expensive legal talent. And the entire thrust of our system for the last 60 odd years, our system in the sense of our judicial system, our system of law, our concept of order has gone from, as the preamble to the Constitution stated, the general welfare, domestic tranquility, where the primary function was the protection of the general law-abiding society. Second, punishment of criminals. And third, and only third, the rights of the accused. We've turned that on its head. Now it's the rights of the accused that takes priority over everything. Punishment is a very distant second. And if it's in, it happens to be in Democrat-run cities and states, even an extremely distant second, many crimes aren't even crimes anymore. And the idea of the general welfare of the public, I mean, the few people who get punished are those who try and defend themselves in the face of this crime. So it's an interesting thing. You know, people say, well, I stand for the Constitution uh, where you're going to have to undo the United States as it is. Because what what the country is today and what the country has become cannot be functioning under the Constitution. It's not that country and it's not that that society that the Constitution and the system of laws upon which it was based were intended to create and to preserve.
0: Yeah, I, I would agree with a lot of that. I'm not sure about there being any real democracy or mob rule. Um, In uh, Peter Turchin's End Times, he cites some scholarship that makes it very clear that there is no democracy whatsoever. That is, Mm -hmm. that all actual policy is made by, at the very minimum, the top 10%, but really it's much more like the top 1% or less, the bottom 90 percent's opinion has absolutely no effect whatsoever on policy. And there's abundant scholars, scholarly research proving this. So as Turchin says, the USA today is obviously a plutocracy, ruled rule by wealth. And you can actually measure the amount of power that someone has almost purely on the basis of their wealth. Certainly, potential power, and some, of course, some wealthy people don't bother to exercise it. So, so I don't think there's any democracy or mob rule or
1: anything like that anywhere. Well, but but that but that but you see, democracy and mob rule are, are I I don't think I would call it an intermediate stage. It's a transitional phase between a republic or some whatever term you want to use, some form of limited government and limited franchise, and the movement to something else, whether it's plutocracy, autocracy, oligarchy, monarchy, whatever it is at the other end, it's one in which any concept of, of popular rule, whether limited or extensive, is purely illusionary. Mm-hmm. Although the, the oligarchs or, uh, Pluto, Plutotarchs or Plutarch, what would we say with that? Pl- I'm not Plutarchs. quite sure. Plutocrats. Plutocrats settled it. Uh, with the oligarchs or plutocrats or autocrats or whatever they are, they still have mobs at their control and they'll still unleash their mobs. And they'll do so um, you know, basically giving giving the rest of the people uh a a lesson or a form of instruction in which get out of the way and accept what we do or we'll destroy you, Mm -hmm. not by police, not by armed forces, but by mobs. And that was the lesson of of 2020, really the lesson of 2020. Mm -hmm. And, you know, what's really ironic about this, um, when when future historians look back on on early 21st century, early and mid 21st century America. If you're an optimist, they'll be writing in Russian. If you're a pessimist, they'll be writing in Chinese. If you're truly dystopian, you'll think they're going to be writing in Swahili. Uh, they're no, never going what's dystopian about Swahili? are never going to. They're never going to understand why it happened. How the most heavily armed civilian population in the history of the world and in the mid-20th century one of the best educated I the mean, education to now is largely a farce you and i both know that you know especially at the so-called higher education levels but the most heavily armed and best educated society that i can find in the history of the world in the mid-20th century america and mid-20th century europe let this happen simply let it happen they stood back and they clutched their constitution their second amendment or their first amendment to their chests as quickly as they could and for as long as they could but they let it happen they watched it happen and they did nothing that's going to be the great puzzle that will be the puzzle i mean gibbons decline and fall of the roman empire would had a clear-cut answer compared to the puzzle that future historians will have looking at us i'm just glad i won't be here well maybe i will be maybe i'll come back yeah that's uh i've uh,
0: had homer van meter on the show talking about his many past lives uh including fighting in various fighting forces Uh, but um let's see the the uh where to start here i mean first off uh, when you know, I, I agree with you overall, and just today's ruling by the appeals court in San Francisco granting the Biden administration uh, a stay on this earlier judge's ruling stopping the Biden administration from censoring people on social media, <laughs> which is an obvious violation of the First Amendment, <laughs> and that's a good illustration of what you're talking about in terms of people having clutched the First Amendment to their bosom for a while, but it's a uh, it's pretty much gone now. And, uh, but on the other hand, is the Constitution itself maybe part of the problem? You know, I've, I've uh, had Peter Simpson on the show talking about how the anti-federalists were right because the, fe- the Constitution, as they said, ends up, may, you know, it's, it's somewhat ambiguous, but the most obvious interpretation of who gets to resolve disputes is the federal courts. And guess what? When there's a dispute between states and the federal government, if the federal courts are the ones who get to resolve the dispute, we're likely to see more and more and more power accruing to the federal government. That's what the uh, anti-federalists said would happen, and it has happened. So maybe the Constitution itself is flawed.
1: Well, it, I, I think that, that, that that's in large part correct. The the difficulty, and I, I pointed this out in that uh, that last article, is that if you happen to look at, at article three, section two of the constitution, which outlines the judiciary, and it talks about these inferior courts, but it specifies explicitly what, in what areas the Supreme Court of the United States has original jurisdiction. And one of those that says explicitly resolve disputes among the states. What was more, what was more blatantly a dispute between the states, other than the Texas lawsuit filed on the 2020 election? I mean, you basically divided the country. I think there were 40, there were 45 or 46 states and the District of Columbia ranged on the two sides, almost equal numbers. That's about as good a a dispute among the states as you're going to have since the Civil War. Since, and by the way, that was our second Civil War. The first Civil War was what we. Uh, somewhat laughingly, called the Revolution, 1775, 1783, because there were at least as many loyalists fighting for the British as there were people fighting against them. So that was our first Civil War. Second Civil War was 1861, 65 and I don't know if there'll be a third one or not. I don't think so. I really don't think so. But in in fact, the Supreme Court had the the authority, the constitutional authority, In fact, it had the constitutional duty, from my point of view, to step up to the plate and deal with this dispute among, for all practical purposes, the entire country divided against itself on this, this question of the election. Now, I don't know how they would have ruled. I don't know how there certainly would have been an airing of a lot of the evidence on both sides. It would have been very embarrassing for the Democrats. I know only in great detail what happened in Michigan, where I'm originally from, because I had family up there discussing it with me and pointing me to uh, programs on local television stations in Wayne County and Detroit. And I had relatives in Pennsylvania talking about this happening in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh. And if that's anything like other states, I can assure you the Democrat states would not run states, would not have wanted that, that to be aired. It wasn't aired, and there was no decision made, and the Supreme Court basically dodged that bullet. The Supreme Court is as political an animal. The justices are as political animals as anyone else in Washington. And they looked at that, and they saw that from the court's position as being a lose-lose position. No matter what they did, the Supreme Court was going to lose. I don't know if it would happen or not, but I'm pretty sure that's the reason that they dodged it. But that was some case where the federal courts did have constitutional jurisdiction, not a matter of them assuming power, but having the power explicitly granted to a specific court. The difficulty we've had with what the Constitution calls inferior courts, which is this huge panoply of district courts, circuit courts of appeal, and God knows how many others. I wouldn't even want to try and count them is that they're a patchwork quilt of Democrats, Republicans, independents, liberals, conservatives running across the entire spectrum, appointed for life by successive administrations. And basically all someone has to do to stop an executive order or a law dead in its tracks for an extended period of time is to cherry pick the court you're going to file the federal court you're going to file on. And you can always find it. I mean, the Republicans did that during the Obama years. They've been doing it sometimes now under the Biden years. The Democrats did it during the Trump administration. And this sort of thing means that the system itself is inherently unworkable. Inherently unworkable. And it can't be fixed. And it can't be fixed in the sense of we're going to tweak it. We're going to make some reforms and things will then be good. That's not true. You can't do it. And the problem with that, the real problem with that is that the mechanism that people will often discuss for correcting this this abuse of the constitutional order is to have a second constitutional convention. Which would mean that the people who would basically be voting themselves out of office and out of power, whether they're Democrats, Republicans, plutocrats, or plebeians, or whatever you want to call them, would have to be the ones to agree to remove themselves from power. I somehow don't see that happening.
0: Well, if you'd see, have to have I the right people calling. Fix. You'd have to get the right people calling and organizing and running the convention,
1: obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you could, you would look at it and you know, the obvious things that would come up, I think without, without any doubt is that for, for any, for any judges and for any, any members of Congress and any members of state legislatures that there would absolutely have to be term limits like there are for president and vice president so that these people, when they hit the ground running, know that they've got a limited time, a finite amount of time before they, they're going to be gone. That helps a little, but it doesn't really change the basic, the basic structure in the sense that you have, uh, how did I put it once? Just give me just a second. Sorry, remember at 81, the brain starts working a little less rapidly than it did at other points in my life. Um, you have a constitution designed where sovereign states were not only important but were at the center. You know, any powers not explicitly granted to the federal government were reserved for the states or to the people. Period. More than that, it was intended for a minor state country on the periphery of the balance of power with a very limited franchise, not a major power at the very epicenter of the balance of power, temporarily or otherwise, with not only universal suffrage, but suffrage increasingly for non-citizens. It can't work. It simply cannot work. And the only question is how rapidly the collapse comes and how bloody it is. Well, I'm not sure it's even supposed to work.
0: Um, that, that is, there's there is the argument that it's the whole electoral system has become window dressing. It's now a facade, sort of like the monarchy in Britain. You know, once Parliament and other aspects of the real you know, bureaucracy that runs things in the UK took over in the 19th century, the monarchy was relegated to being just a kind of a, a showpiece. And likewise, there's an argument, I think a guy named Michael Glennon or something wrote a book about this in National Security and the Double Government, in which he argued that we're in that situation now. In our constitutional government, the, you know, the three branches and the, the elected officials and so on are just like the monarchs uh, in places like the UK. That is, it's just, it's sheer window dressing. And again, the academic research makes absolutely clear that the views of the 90 percent don't matter one little bit. So there's really no democracy. The the way that the whole system is essentially getting the consent of of the ordinary people to rule by these you know, corrupt oligarchs by creating an illusion, a Disney world in which there's this democracy going on.
1: Well, you know, between between corrupt oligarchs who can find Europe on a map and an illiterate mass who doesn't know who fought in the Civil War and and where Australia is, I'm not really sure there's much to choose. You know, if it, give it, giving the power to the people is great if the people are well-educated and have got a, a good sense of where things are. But co- other than that, counting noses doesn't do any better than counting dollars. Mm-hmm. It really yeah. doesn't. Yeah. And, and I, oh, there's something, a little, little bit of a thing, just as you mentioned that on, on Britain, you know, I thought that too about Britain, you know, basically in the 19th century as they shifted to a parliamentary government, uh, increasingly that way, that the monarchs became increasingly window dressing. Um, I learned something when I was lecturing at, um, uh, St. Anthony College and Oxford University, one of my, my attendees was a British army officer, and he said, "You know, in Britain, even today, the the army officers they take their oath to the monarch. The oath is to the monarch, not to you know the, the non-existent written constitution in Britain, or to the country, or to any, to the government, or anything like that. The oath is it's a personal one to the sovereign." And I said, well, I understand that. I said, but in a practical matter, what difference did it make? And he said, the difference it made is that on the eve of World War I in 1914, um, it was not at all clear that the army would permit any solution to the Irish question other than the retention by force, if necessary, of a united Ireland as part of the United Kingdom. And that the prime minister, if the prime minister and the parliamentary government ordered to the contrary, there was great uncertainty about what the army would do.
0: And is that because, yeah, is that that because the monarch think, was going to order them
1: uh, to have, ignore if, it, ignore the orders of the parliament? A, there was a lot of unhappiness, and apparently King George, that King George, I guess, was the fifth at that time, um, was very much on on the side of the army on this that he want he didn't I guess, I guess you could say it was the the, the pre runner to Winston Churchill you know uh I am not His Majesty's Prime Minister in order to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire surprise um, and I guess in that sense King George V did not believe that his position as sovereign. However strong or weak it might be in constitutional terms was to preside over the dissolution of the United Kingdom. And no one knew what he would say or do, apparently. I mean, I, I'm not a specialist on British history, but I was, I was surprised about that. And so I asked a few other British army officers and some Navy and Air Force officers as well in different places about this, you know, mostly field-grade officers, a couple of fl- what we would call flag officers. And they said, yeah, that, that, that 1914 was uh, was a touchy time. He said, in, in, in a sense, World War I was almost uh, a way of escaping that dilemma. And I said, well, you, you found a very bloody way to escape it. You know, it's <laughs> not exactly one of those, you know, it destroyed an entire generation of, of leaders in the first year. Uh, but, you know, it's never quite certain how that would go. We're not, we're not that way here. Um, but I got, I always felt a little uneasy when that, uh, incestuous semi-senile pedophile, who's now the president of the United States, would threaten to use F-16s and tanks against American citizens. I wonder if he, it, who he thinks is going to be in those tanks and planes. I wonder if what he thinks the, the National Guard and reserves will do. Does he think they'll? Does he really believe? I mean, it, to the extent that he thinks, I'm not sure he does think. He sniffs little girls, but he may not think beyond that. Uh, well,
0: does he, he, really, he may not have any F-16s left. Do the people, do the people around
1: friend. him? Do the people around him really believe? that the military would unquestionably obey orders from the White House or from the Pentagon to use armed force against a portion of the American people. I think they should think twice about it. I think you would very likely have a severe split in the armed forces. And... That's even with with a government, who has managed to transform the higher ranks of the armed forces into effectively a a woke bureaucracy. Mm-hmm. Well, not, not did, quite not quite the court system, but it, but it's really one of those things. Anyway, that was that was an aside. But, but, but Alan,
0: didn't didn't this come up with the in the summer of 2020 the uh, the, the rioting and so on. And Trump was considering using the military, um, against American citizens. And you supported that, right?
1: I support American citizens who are rioting. There is no constitutional right to riot. There's a constitutional right to protest. There is no constitutional right to riot, loot, burn, and murder, period. And if the Democrat and if the governors and the mayors won't restore order, It's the constitutional responsibility of the president, whoever it is, the commander-in-chief of the armed forces, to use the armed forces of the United States to stop it, period. They did it in Detroit in 1968 in the riots, federalized the National Guard and used regular troops as well.
0: So, but, but in the scenario that you're imagining with Biden using troops against Americans, are you suggesting that that would be in a case where there was no rioting, no violence? He would just call out the troops to go after totally unarmed, peaceful protesters?
1: Well, well, you know, con- consider, you know, the left is always the one that's been screaming about violence, and it's the one that's been committing the violence. Really, you know, that January 6th was a, was a charade, and you know that. As, you know, I've never heard of an unarmed insurrection by a heavily armed population in, in my life, not by any chance at all. Um, I would normally, normally, I would say that the concept is laughable. But when you have, oh, like in, when you have uh, American citizens who object to gender change being forced on their children, And they're called by the President of the United States as domestic terrorists. And Nancy Pelosi, when she was Speaker of the House, referred to her Republican opposition as enemies of the state. And you have police and FBI under Democrat control arresting parents who protest the rape of their daughters in schools by transgender boys or gender fluid boys in the case of Virginia. When you have these things happening, I think the idea of rationality and of the normal concept of a rule of law is gone.
0: Yeah, well, I think there's some truth to that. You mentioned earlier that the British may have um, accelerated their move into World War One or helped precipitate World War I in part as a way of refocusing that uh, chaos they were experiencing over the Irish question in other words, an internal matter is you know, leading to into civil war or internal strife, and then they fix that by projecting the violence outward. And that's been a time-honored uh, mechanism that's been used by many governments. And we could see something like that maybe going on now. We have this very polarized American society with a potential for some kind of conflict uh, or perhaps even civil war, social breakdown. And then we have nearly a hot war with Russia and World War III. And I would imagine that there would be a sort of a temptation among some of the leadership and also just sort of an unconscious dynamic pushing towards trying to resolve the polarization problem internally by going into World War III, which sort of forces everybody to unite, if only, you know, to try to find a way of of surviving the radiation burns and so on. Hmm.
1: I, well, I, I'm less, I'm less sure that it would do, uh, do much to bring the people together. Um, I am curious about one thing, though, if, you know, now that we're talking about, talked about the British question, I'm going to have to follow up on that and to some of my friends in the UK and see, see if, what, what the consensus is there on the likelihood of it. One thing that, like, um, uh, you know, like Americans on the eve of the Civil War, we thought, we thought, and the British thought, and the French thought, and the Germans thought, going into 1914, that this was going to be a short war. Surprise! Bring in a surprise on that. What it would do for the United States? Well, we'd have to under, we'd have to look forward to fighting. I would think not only Russia, but probably some other countries too. And I don't, I don't think that that would be the sort of thing that could, could end without the use of nuclear weapons. And that would be, a, be an interesting way of terminating the human race.
0: It seems like we're almost halfway there. With I mean, both sides see this Ukraine conflict as
1: existential, and so nobody can back down. Well, it's it's only existential because we're we're continuing to funnel weapons into them, into Ukraine, and because the Russians made a, a catastrophic miscalculation at the beginning. Um, they thought they they were the Wehrmacht and they could do Blitzkrieg, and they found out they weren't. And I'd be interesting to see how long it's going to take for for the story of that to come out, because it started it started almost as a textbook case of Blitzkrieg. Took out the Ukraine, Russians took out the Ukrainian Air Force, Air Defense Systems, Communication Systems, almost in the first 24 hours. Dropped an airborne, not airborne, they don't call it that, they call it Air Assault Brigade, on the airport outside of Kiev, which is the biggest one in the country, able to handle large transport aircraft. And they had an armored column, apparently it was about 40 miles long. From Belarus that was there on maneuvers, quote unquote, with Belarus, uh punched down into Ukraine, and then the armored column didn't get there. And the air assault brigade was was either killed or captured, the airfield was retaken, everyone around had time to start start breathing and then begin to start pushing weapons into Ukraine. Uh, and you got a high-tech version of World War One. Interesting to see what happened. I'm surprised that more generals haven't disappeared into uh, into Siberia or elsewhere. So, Alan, do you, do you think that the original Russian strategy then was to
0: actually, they, they thought they were going to be able to militarily take Kiev in a blitzkrieg because they were outnumbered two to one. And my take on it would be that more likely they were hoping for some kind of surrender or uh, instability. Maybe they were even organizing some kind of a coup in Kiev. But I, I don't think that they actually thought that what they deployed militarily was likely
1: to uh, just take over uh, Kiev on, on its own. Well, well you know, well, well, no, number, numbers really aren't that important. It's quality and organization and tactical skill. Um, I mean, the Germans proved that in World War II, the early part of World War II. Um, but I, I'll tell you this much. If they didn't plan on, and you know, not a, not a slugging match through Ukraine, but you know, a very quick one, take out the capital, take out the big airport and take, and do it that way. If they didn't plan on doing on on a military solution right up front, you know, two to four weeks, something like that, before any kind of resistance from outside could be reorganized while anything within Ukraine was still reeling from the strikes, um, then they would, Then you have to accept that they deliberately threw away a brigade of their best troops, aerosol troops, on the airport and deliberately stalled an armored column that was coming down from Belarus, that they did that. They deliberately did it. They deliberately threw it away. And I don't think I can imagine any military staff in the world who would waste some of their best troops in what they understood was going to be just a a futile show of force. We didn't really mean it at the beginning and and use that much military force to try and punch away into Ukraine and then not do it and, and not be serious about it. You don't do that. You, you know if you're thinking about doing something like that that you make a demonstration you know show of force you don't commit at that level that many troops and sacrifice some of your very best troops just for show it's not the sort of thing you do that any staff does mm-hmm. yeah I mean lot- it would be, it, look look at from my point of view you know, I was in the Marines, as I've told you many, many times. You know, it would be like taking taking a Marine brigade and bouncing it out on a corner of China and say, we're going to drop this on the Chinese mainland, and we don't really mean it. So fight as hard as you can, and, you know, good luck. Mm-hmm. Really? Well, I,
0: I would have thought that that was, they. you know, they weren't, they didn't have enough to occupy Kiev, but they were, they were hoping that they had enough to flip Kiev. Um,
1: they had enough to, they had, they had enough to, to take the airport and to hold it for a while. They did, and that was the intent. Yeah. That was clearly the intent of that brigade. Yeah. And the, the intent of this armored column coming in from the northwest was to, it's the short, it's the short path into Kiev. You're not going in from Russia. You're coming in from Belarus. Look at the map and look at the, look yeah. at the axis of, yeah. of approach. You can do that, and the idea—it's—it's—it's it's, it's it's called a, a form of decapitation. There are two types of decapitation. One is that you take out the leadership, with some type of a surgical strike—you know, aircraft, missiles, drones, some combination thereof—and the second decapitation is you take out the capital, the capital city. And if you know with this, the biggest airport gone, the capital city gone. That's that's a reasonable strategic goal. So, so what is taking? Otherwise, out the, I'm sorry, Otherwise, what, what, otherwise, there was a lot of fluff, and motion, and casualties, for nothing.
0: What what, what is and taking do, out the capital city mean? So, you, you take the airport, and what else do you do to take out the capital city?
1: I don't know. I don't know. That that depends. That depends on what you intend to do. I I expect with that type of a strike, if they'd actually gotten in, if the if the armored column from Belarus. Had linked up with the airport. Um, I expect at that time Zelensky and his Azov battalion would have found some other place to be. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. I mean, that, that, that's the that's that's the idea of it. Is that you know you, you force you force the enemy's government. You don't you don't want to fight inside cities if you can avoid it. The Russians the Russians know that they know. They know what happened to the Germans when they got bogged down in cities, you know, not just Stalingrad, but others as well. Fighting inside cities is a horrible waste of good soldiers. Anyone with with a hand grenade or a rifle can get off a few rounds and you start losing men, you know, by, by ones and twos and threes, which add up after a while. So I don't know what it would have been, but the usual the usual goal in something like this is to force your opponent's government to flee the country. And with your opponent's government gone, you could reinstate uh, a pro-Russian government, the one that was elected in 2014, perhaps someone else, and, you know, declare the country to be neutral, alive, whatever you want to call it. You know, there's, there's a lot of different end scenarios that you can have there. But I think that the purpose, that the goal would, would have been not to want to fight through the streets of Kiev, that would have been expensive and fairly silly to do, but to force the the flight of Zelensky and his government and a collapse of the the regime in power and your ability to put a pro-Russian government in power.
0: Mm-hmm. That that makes sense, and that would fit but with the denazification.
1: I, mean, I, I mean, anything else? And you, but you but you first of all, you've got to get that armored column in into the country. Most of the Ukrainian armed forces were in the north northeast of the country as i saw the original map i don't know how good it was you know it wasn't a classified map but they were in the you know where the russian troops were it's for the, along the north and the northeast this one coming in from belarus sort of did a right hook you know that's just from the from the right hook from the russian perspective around the ukrainians left flank coming for the airport and it didn't make it if it had linked up with that with the people holding the airport then I think they would have gotten what, what they wanted. Zelensky and his people would have run for it. And at that point, that's the end of the game.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And There's uh, nothing to fight for. There's nothing to fight for.
0: Yeah, well, that would have been a lot quicker and uh, certainly less bloody and potentially destructive in the long run. So where do you think it's going now?
1: Like I said, World War I protracted scale. Mm-hmm. High-tech version of it. You know, we we're gonna be we're probably upping the ante on it, and uh, since none of the people who seem to be giving this government advice on military affairs seem to know uh which orifice they use to drink from and which orifice they use for other purposes. Uh and the president certainly doesn't. Uh I I wouldn't even hazard a guess. It's it's like being it's like being looking at a madhouse, and realizing that that the people that the inmates really are in charge. I I heard a brief reference to, and you may have heard the the full interview, to an interview with Tucker Carlson and Mike Pence. And he's, you know Carlson said to him something like. Look, our, our cities, all of our cities have gotten worse over the last couple of years. And and you're talking about tanks for Ukraine. What's in it for America? He said, that's not my problem. <laughs> Excuse me, you're a vice president. you want to be a presidential candidate? See, what happens to American cities is not your problem. It's It's, it's less important than tanks for Ukraine. Give me a break. That's back to what you were talking about earlier about a plutocracy or a relatively small fraction of the population running running the country and for whatever purposes that they have, independent of the interests of the people of the country itself. Right.
0: And according to this model, you know, that, that Turchin develops in his book End Times and, and I think a lot of other people actually would agree with, the way things change is not usually a revolt from below per se, but rather you have a counter-elite group, one or more counter-elite groups developing to challenge the dominant elite group, and currently we seem to have a kind of a a counter-elite insurgency to a certain extent with people who are certainly part of the elite in terms of their wealth and their connections, uh, such as Elon Musk, RFK Jr., Donald Trump, uh, etc., uh, with uh, you know, certain backing from some Silicon Valley billionaires, in the case of RFK Jr. and some big money Mercer's with Trump and things like that, uh, you know, Sheldon Adelson. So there, there were, you know, there are these people in the elite with big money and big power who are lining up behind folks who are way outside the box in terms of the dominant elite's uh, messaging, and so that that creates an interesting and unstable situation. We just had Seymour Hersh today speculating on a Trump Kennedy ticket. Uh, that that is, because you know, <laughs> tr- Trump looks like you know Trump will get the Republican nomination even if he's you know wearing a jailbird suit at the at the at the inauguration. And and RFK Jr. probably won't get the Democratic nomination no matter what a great candidate he is because it's so rigged against him. So the uh, kind of you know natural. Uh, heal the divide path would indeed be for some kind of ticket like that, which would certainly be a big time counter elite move against the uh, main dominant faction of the elite.
1: I wouldn't say it's a counter elite move at all. I mean, elite set faction fights. You know, when when Pompey and Caesar went at each other, the, these these weren't two two people, one for the one for the people and one for the rich. They're both extremely wealthy people. Uh, and in our case now. Most of those billionaires you're talking about are Zionists and RFK Jr. Very quickly backstepped as, as did DeSantis and Trump and they're all still backing them. They're all still backing. Yeah. There's no counter Zionist elite. is there? There's (laughs) probably, there might, there might be two or more factions within the Jewish community today or within the Israeli community. If you want to make a distinction between it, I don't, but we'll pretend for a while for public purposes. Um, that are that are that are have disputes over, if not ends, at least means and intermediate steps. And that's that their dispute. But that neither one of those has the interest of the American people at heart. Neither one of us has the welfare of the United States at heart. DeSantis goes off to Israel to sign a legislation for making criticizing Israel a hate crime. Um Trump is obviously in their pocket as much as anyone else. So so is RFK Jr. He won't criticize the people who, as far as we know, uh, helped assassinate his uncle
0: and his Both father orchestrated
1: oh. the assassination of his uncle.
0: I mean, he must have noticed that his father, you know, was killed by professionals who chose a Palestinian patsy. I mean, that's not yep. very subtle, is it?
1: Well, it's well, it is. It was in the 1960s hmm. <laughs> right. In I retrospect, mean, it looks pretty I'm bad. perfectly serious. It wasn't it wasn't the 1960s because it came a year after the 67 war. Right. In which the rest of the territories were occupied in East Jerusalem. Uh, and so the idea that a Palestinian might do something like this, but why why he would go after someone who was challenging the president rather than after the president. Hard to say. to Uh, say the least but but it it was plausible at that time
0: well plausible you know for people who are paying attention superficially i would imagine but i I think the obvious thing was that rfk was killed by people who didn't want him uh, getting the power to do something about the murder of jfk and then the question of who those people were was still somewhat open but boy i don't know i i guess people were pretty blind back then but again you know who would who would pick a Palestinian patsy? I mean,
1: come on. Well, actually, they weren't they weren't that blind. I know the uh, at the time that JFK was murdered, um, television at the time had pictures by video from the area of people on the ground pointing up to the grassy knoll. They weren't pointing up to the top of the book depository. They pointed to the grassy knoll. And this wasn't just just hundreds who were looking out for, you know, for gunshots. You know, this was just a very relatively short time, 10 years after the Korean War ended. Vietnam had been underway for a couple of years, although very low key. 18 years after World War Two, there was a lot of Americans who knew what gunfire sounded like. Their lives depended on it. And they looked for the grassy knoll, and that's where they saw that they, they said the shots came from. I saw his, I saw the, the videos, even the, the films that we're allowed to see, which are obviously very restricted and very edited. And at the time I hadn't seen people be killed by gunfire. This was in 1963. After Vietnam, I realized that uh, the way his body moved, as well as what was his Navy secretary's name? John Connolly, the governor of Texas. Right. Yeah. Uh, God, it's been a long time since I thought of that. Um that the way the bodies moved could not have been uh, gunshots coming from up on top in the building. Had to be somewhere else. But in fact, if I were going to do that, I'd triangulate the, the kill zone, have three gunmen on the ground, maybe have put a fourth one up on in the roof just in, or in the book depository just so I could do it. But you always triangulate it so that no matter which way the car turns, no matter what the driver tries to do when the first shot comes out, You've always got two guns on it, hmm. and he has to know that RFK Jr. has to know that he's not a foolish man. Well, he, he's he does. person.
0: He no, he knows that, and he said it, and he blames the CIA, but he, he certainly doesn't mention his Israeli friends.
1: No, he wouldn't, not in the slightest. And so that that's why it's not going to matter. You know, there there are factions within the pro-Israel group or the the Zionist group or whatever whatever you want to call it. They're factions that have a difference of opinion on where the country should go. And I, I guess I would say if I were looking at it, you've got the ones who are backing the, backing the Democrats, given the policies the Democrats are doing are prepared to kill the goose that leaves the golden eggs. That's, that is the United States in order to remove a potential obstacle to whatever long-term interests and goals they have while the group that's that's circulating around Trump or DeSantis for that matter um, wants to keep the fatten up the golden goose and keep it healthy and keep it laying those golden eggs because they see it as more useful to them for whatever long-term goals they have and they may be the same goal but it's the intermediate positions are different. So whether you want to be a a uh, cooked golden goose or a fattened golden goose depends on whether you back the Democrats or the Republicans. Hmm. Okay. <laughs> this well, is the golden goose. The golden goose theory of politics. How's that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think there are certainly arguments for the fattened as opposed to the cooked goose. Although <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm not really sure that that that's you know that, that that lines up that way. In that, as I see it, Alan, the driving factor is kind of a combination of ever-increasing corruption and declining public morality, uh, a- along with the uh, ever greater inequality of wealth, and hence power, that is, you know, driving, as Turchin says, it drives in- in competition among the elites, and that's what ends up destroying societies, but of course it also leads, you know, does make everybody angry. And, and you know, the average folks in America haven't really seen any improvement economically since the 1960s and even you know maybe even the late 50s uh, and all of that massive increase in productivity and wealth since then has gone disproportionately to the top and the biggest increases have been the top 000001 percent and then the next biggest to the 0.01% etc cetera, etc cetera, etc so That's just how it looks, you know, there's mathematically, and mathematically that plus the corruption factor dooms the whole system. And DeSantis and Trump, for, you know, all of their good rhetoric and so on on certain things, ultimately, for the most part, line up behind that super 0.01%. I mean, none of those guys are talking about, you know, the fact that Eisenhower's economics was uh, 10 million miles to the left of Bernie Sanders, Right. Uh, and that 's why the society was so much more equal then you had ninety percent plus marginal tax on the highest income brackets and a lot of other things as well, and actual regulation of corporations and so on and so forth and the country actually worked because of this, and now it doesn 't work because all that got thrown out, and the corrupt oligarchs are just scrambling for more and more money and to me, DeSantis and Trump are every bit as bad in that respect as the democrats
1: they're they're I think I think they're they're bad, but in a different way. Well, what you're describing would also be 4th century Rome, the yeah. basic basic destruction of small family farms, the creation, I think they called them Latifundia, these massive corporate farms. Yeah. And, and we, we were going to talk about Farm Eagle, Eagle about in the, the Snow,
0: the great book about the fall of Rome, but we just ran out of time because I hear the bumper music. So. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, Alan Zabrowski. Uh, keep up the great work. Uh, it's always fun touching base with you. And, you know, maybe God willing, we will get another chance to talk again on this show.
1: Good luck. Good luck to you, Kevin, to you and your family. Okay, thanks, Alan. of yourself and be safe. Be safe thanks. and be well. Okay,
0: likewise. Uh, blessings to you, too. And to all our listeners, thank you so much. Back to the next hour with Joaquin Hagopian, uh, fast-tracking World War III. Listen to
1: Revolution Radio at